All right, Jewel, 2016, you sold your company, part pick to Amazon for an undisclosed amount. It was done. You signed on the line. How'd you feel? It's a crazy idea that you get a large deposit into your bank account and you are crying. Yes, <laughs> it's, yes. It's a very strange thing. I could not get out of bed that morning. Oh, wow. I was so sad. Um, later, kind of diagnosed with depression around just the process and, and the aftermath and, and all of that. And it's something that I've still been dealing with. Um, but it was something else to be in that situation where, you know, Everyone around me, at least who knew about what was happening, they're like, you have to be so excited. I mean, this is just incredible. And I felt a little bit selfish that I wasn't as excited as I probably should have been. Yes. And yeah, it was just a lot of emotions to kind of deal with through that process. Welcome back to Access and Opportunity. I'm Carla Harris, and the voice you just heard belongs to the amazing Jewel Burke Solomon. In 2016, Jewel sold her company, PartPick, to Amazon for an undisclosed amount. But as you can hear, Jewel's exit experience was far from a walk in the park. And today, for the first time ever, we're going to hear her tell that story. No holes barred. In this episode, We'll talk to Jewel about why she left Silicon Valley to start a company in Atlanta, how she navigated the investing landscape, and what hindsight has taught her. Jewel's candid explanation of the troubles she faced provided a valuable insight into the less discussed downsides of the entrepreneur's journey. You won't want to miss this one. All right, Jill, this season we're talking to entrepreneurs who've had an exit. Before we get there, let's go all the way back to the beginning. You're from Alabama and Tennessee. You went to Howard. And how did you decide you want to be an entrepreneur? You know, I always tell people that I got entrepreneurship honest because both my parents are entrepreneurs and I grew up working in their businesses. So I think that uh, I never really thought about being an entrepreneur. I just thought this is the path that has been laid out for me, and this is what I'm going to do. So you left Howard saying, someday I'm going to run my own company, but you didn't have an idea, you didn't have a vision, you just said, someday I'm going to start my own company, which is what a lot of undergraduates say. Yes. Right? Uh, But yet you took a job with Google, first job right out of uh, Howard, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And and why Google? Why did you go to the Valley? Well, I was a business major. Okay. Yeah. And I graduated in 2010. And I interned on Wall Street, so I actually thought initially I would be going to Wall Street, but graduated in that kind of iffy time period. Um, And so my second internship was at Google. And when I moved out to Silicon Valley for that internship, I really just fell in love with all that was happening. The innovation, just the, the, the pace of everything was just so cool to me. And so I wanted to go back and, and work there full time. So that's an interesting point that you were a business major, not a technology major. Mm-hmm. It was, wow, let me just land here and see what's going on. Exactly. Okay, so I thought there would be a lot of opportunity. I just thought being there would be an entryway into just a whole new world and a mm-hmm. whole new life for and, me. And it turned out that you were right. Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so what made you decide to leave? To leave Google? Yes. So it was actually family. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandmother was diagnosed with with breast cancer. My younger brother was sick. 
right at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I was too far away um, Mm -hmm. living in California and having to hop on planes to check on them. So it was really me wanting to get closer to family. Uh, And at the time, I had previously interviewed with McMaster Car, an industrial parts company. So they sell you know, millions of products, primarily to manufacturers, distributors, and retailers. Okay. Got the job and moved to Atlanta so that I could be close to, to my family. So when you went from Google to McMaster, was it a lateral move? Was it a, a promotion or, or demotion even? So on paper, it was a promotion because I was making more money and I was able to manage people. But as far as the perception of it, the idea of going from, you know, what people consider to be one of the greatest places to work, Google, to a company that most people haven't heard of, McMaster, that felt like a bit of a a step backwards. Okay. And when I got to McMaster, I saw a really big company that operated very efficiently from the perspective of getting product in and out the door. But from the perspective of technology, I felt it was not very advanced at all. I mean, we were entering orders in a kind of mainframe system and black screen, blue text. So to me, I was like, I can't believe that I, I went from Google, which is super advanced, to this company. And I saw that there is probably an opportunity there. And I was really thinking about how can I make my time here useful? Mm -hmm. Um, Because a part of me felt like I was making a big career mistake going from Google to McMaster. Um, So I started to think, okay, I have to make the most of this time. How can I do that? And in my role, I was managing in the call center. So I got all of these calls from customers and I started really thinking about the problems they were talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's kind of what led me to this idea that a lot of these customers, they they just need to find a specific part, but they don't know what it's called. They don't have a part number for it. And a lot of times they even say, can I just send a picture of one that I have? Oh, wow. So it's like they gave me the idea. Wow. <laughs> and I got the really light bulb idea just living in the problem. And I was also um, helping my grandfather find a part for his tractor. Uh, we have a family farm in Repton, Alabama. And he had a New Holland tractor, and it broke down in the middle of his harvest. And he had he was able to identify the part that was broken. He took the part off the tractor, told me what it was called, and I started searching for it, and I could not find this part. And so that was really the thing that made me feel like, okay, there has to be a better way. Outstanding. So talk to us about what was the next step? What did you do? You say, okay, I need a thing that's going to take a picture, that can go (laughs) through a database, that can find this part anywhere in the world because it's not always here. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So the next step for me was first to try to see if it existed. So I had this idea and I was thinking, this seems pretty simple. I mean, just take a picture of a part and find it. That seems pretty straightforward. So let me see if there's anyone out here that's tried something like this before. And in that research, I really couldn't find anything. I could find computer vision applications for other types of products, but nothing for parts. The next thing I did was I sent my mom an email with the idea, and it outlined my idea for part pick. And basically, it, it was asking, would she support me? Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the underlying message there was, if this doesn't work out, can I come back home? Right. Because <laughs> I was 23 at the time. Okay. And she said, this is a great idea. And moms usually would say that this is a great idea. So I couldn't take that 
too too much, but um, I was happy to have at least a little bit of support. You knew you had a backstop, so yes. that's really what you wanted. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, and then the next person I reached out to was one of my former coworkers from Google, who at the time that I left to go to McMaster, he left to go to Shazam. Okay. And Shazam is music recognition. Just press a button and find out the song. And I thought from a product perspective, I really wanted Perpick to feel like Shazam. So I reached out to him and asked him different questions about, you know, do you think this is possible based on what you know and what you're doing at Shazam? Do you think this type of application will work out? And he connected me with some engineers from Shazam to kind of talk about the feasibility of the product. And they said, this is going to be really difficult, but it's possible. And that's really all I needed to hear. But that was kind of like how the conversation started. Okay. I just changed my whole life at that okay. time and started doing a lot of research, changing the way I was thinking about my job, um, turning that into my own little customer discovery mm-hmm. uh, spot. Yes. And, and also starting to attend things at Georgia Tech. Um, to kind of grow the network as well as learn a little bit more about what it was that I wanted to build. So this is an important playbook point, and I think there was two important things that you just said. Number one, you leveraged your resources and your relationships. You called someone and said, hey, here's what I'm thinking about. Is this possible? And and that that's important because they said, hey, I'm not the person, but I can introduce you to this person. So now you're having conversations with engineers. Yeah, I mean, I had to because I didn't have very much money. Mm-hmm. I had to rely on people that I'd met in the past, met meet new people, and really sell people on this idea that this is a great vision that I have, Mm -hmm. but I need help to push it forward. Okay, so take me to meeting some of the engineers and and getting people on board to actually start building this. Yeah, so one thing I think was great for me was that when I went to Georgia Tech and started having conversations with people, I was able to meet some people who were like, this is actually— right in line with what I've been studying and mm-hmm. writing papers about for the last five or six years, mm-hmm. but haven't had a, a an idea about what is a real-world application of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of those people was Dr. Nashley Cephas, and she was just finishing up her PhD and was also coming out of a situation where she was, she's been the only, you know, the only black woman in a lot of her um, schooling and really was inspired by the fact that in the opportunity to work with me yes. as another black woman. Um, so that was kind of, there was this perfect storm of something that she was also interested in and just her desire to want to work with me. Um, that was a, a key, key hire yeah. um, because she, I say she's like the brains behind the operation. She really built out the algorithms and made this technology that was so novel um, that we ultimately attracted a buyer like Amazon. Mm -hmm. So that first seed round, let's talk to us about that process. Yes. Okay. It was hard. Mm -hmm. Um, So the first $100,000 came Mm -hmm. from two family friends. And then the first check from outside of people I knew was um, Joanne Wilson. She's a great angel investor in New York. And she really helped because she opened up her network to other investors, Mm -hmm. other angels. Um, And so that kind of kicked things off. So really it was about six months to raise the first $1.5 million. Okay. Yeah, and lots of meetings. Yes, yes, okay, (laughs) of course. And was there any learning out of that that you can share, especially with entrepreneurs that are listening? Because I would argue that we have three major audiences, uh, entrepreneurs, policymakers, uh, and then investors who say they can't find any uh, women or multicultural founders. So that's one, one of the reasons we're having this conversation. 
Yeah. So I think for the entrepreneurs, the biggest thing I learned was that you have to kind of create circles around people mm-hmm. and you shouldn't be the first one to tell them about what you're working on. So something that worked in Joanne's case was I knew a few people who knew her before I spoke with her. Maybe three or four people have said, have you met Jewel? Have you yes. met Jewel? And so when by the time I finally got a chance to speak with her, she was like, everyone's been telling me about you. You, you know, when you have someone that you really want to talk to or you really want to invest in your company is try to find people who know that person and can put in a good word. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing I would say to the entrepreneurs. To the investors, um, you know, I had a big challenge as far as people maybe not taking the company seriously because they they could not understand how me as a, at that time, 24-year-old black woman would be capable of leading this type mm-hmm. of company. I think a lot of times people saw me and they couldn't make the fit. There was like parts and machine learning. I just don't see how you would be the one to lead that. Especially with no technical background. Especially with right. no technical background. It's interesting. Let's turn that on its head. Mm-hmm. Woman, black woman, machine learning, she had the idea She saw the need. She put it together. Maybe there's something pretty special here because that is not a normal thing that you'd find yourself in that situation and wake up one day and say, wait, there's a problem here that needs to be solved with millions of customers around the world. Let me go do that. So in many ways, that whole path, in my mind, de-risked it as opposed to looking at, you know, the, huh? No. So it's (laughs) you're right. I I like to open your mind, but it's an important playbook because I think that's one of the challenges for women and multicultural entrepreneurs is that people can't get past that instead of looking through a different lens at the same thing. Mm -hmm. Right. So now let's talk a little bit about the particular challenges as you started to scale the business. So now we have a little bit of a, a problem in timing. So what happened is that we were actually a bit early to market as far as adoption of this type of technology with the types of customers that we were selling to. And the great thing is that customers loved what we were doing. The not so great thing is that they had about three or four steps that they needed to take care of before they could work with us. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these customers were still relying heavily on catalogs and PDFs and not having a huge e-commerce presence. And with that, they didn't have images that we could use and train our models on to be able to recognize their parts. So hold up. Let's be clear for our audience. Do you mean... (laughs) Customers. So our business model was to license our technology to ABC Parts Company so that they could help their customers more easily locate products. So we were a B2B. So a discovery we made was that we need to help them with the imagery because if we can get the images faster, then they can adopt our technology. So we ended up standing up a whole imaging operation. Mm -hmm. It was a great discovery, but it's one that takes money. And that's where difficulty came in because we were being evaluated as a enterprise SaaS company, which we were. However, we probably should have been evaluated as a deep technology company where what we're looking at is advanced algorithms that we've built. And that's the measure versus how many companies we've signed on and how many of them have signed up for $200,000 contracts. Yes. Um, so I tried to change our positioning in the market to being evaluated against AI systems mm-hmm. that had deep technology that needed time to develop. And in that process is when I decided to kind of lift up Nash, Dr. Nashley Cephas, who I mentioned, um, and get her positioning at 
tech conferences yes. so that people could recognize that we are really a company that is focused on next level technology. Mm-hmm. And that's actually what, what led to Amazon co- becoming aware of what we what we did when okay. Nashley was speaking at a conference and they were in the room. Okay. So now let's talk about that. Let's talk about that phone call from, from Amazon. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Nashley spoke at a conference, a deep, deep learning conference in Boston. She came back to the office on Monday morning and handed me a stack of cards. And I'm kind of flipping through the cards and I see Amazon corporate development and that sparked my curiosity. And so I asked her, what was the conversation like here? And she said, oh, yeah, they really liked what we were doing. Uh, and so we kind of initiated a conversation from there. And that was May of 2016. Mm-hmm. And by October 31st, we closed the deal. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> so, so when you first started Part Pick, were you thinking about an exit, uh, a, an M&A exit versus building a multi-billion dollar company? Well, I wanted to build a multi-billion dollar company, okay. but I did imagine that Parpick would likely be, we would have an exit through an acquisition versus going public, mm-hmm. just because I felt we were focused on a really specific area, um, and it would likely fit into a larger offering from a big corporation. Mm-hmm. So I did envision that we would sell uh, eventually. When you first had that first conversation with with Amazon and they made the offer, what was the process like? Well, the first thing is that I was in the middle of raising or attempting to raise a Series A at this time. So initially, I thought the conversations would lead to them investing in that round. So that was the initial conversation. And then how that changed was they kind of just put an offer on the table. Mm-hmm. And that was surprising because it wasn't what I was setting out to do at that time. Mm-hmm. I definitely had aspirations of continuing to grow the business. But unfortunately, I wasn't super happy with what I was seeing on the investment side. So mm-hmm. I was getting term sheets, but I didn't feel like they were really valuing the company in the way that I valued the company. And so the Amazon offer looked more attractive because Unfortunately, I didn't have great alternatives mm-hmm. as far as continuing the business and, and raising more money. And I also was hyper aware of what was happening in the market. So I was watching other companies in the visual recognition mm. space getting acquired by large, you know, the Googles and the Facebooks and the Microsofts. Yes. And I was aware of what I mentioned about companies that we were selling to not being quite ready for the product. We needed a little bit more time for the market to catch up with with our solution. Mm-hmm. So all of these factors put together made me believe that it, the right decision was to to sell the business. Okay. Yeah. So how did you feel? It was done. You signed on the line. How'd you feel? It's a crazy idea that you get a large deposit into your bank account and you are crying. Yes. <laughs> it's, yes. it's a very strange thing. I could not get out of bed that morning. Oh, wow. I was so sad. Um, later, kind of diagnosed with depression around just the process and, and the aftermath and, and all of that. And it's something that I've still been dealing with. Um, but it was something else to be in that situation where, you know, everyone around me, at least who knew about what was happening, they're like, you have to be so excited. I mean, yes. this is just incredible. And I felt a little bit selfish that I wasn't as excited as yes. I probably should have been. Yes. 
And yeah, it was just a lot of emotions to kind of deal with through that process. And it's it's my assertion, Jewel, that women and multicultural entrepreneurs, I think these entrepreneurs sell a little bit too early. Yeah. Because the process of going to market to raise the capital is so tough. Yeah. I mean, would you think you think that the margin that's right? I think that is right. I think it was just so challenging to find investors that aligned with my vision for the company that were confident in my ability to run the business. And I just, I didn't want to do it anymore from that perspective. I wanted to run the business, but I didn't want to be in these conversations that I felt like were not moving in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I would agree that it's, it's probably true that, you know, diverse entrepreneurs likely sell too soon just because that the alternatives are not attractive. Yes. I think Carla Harris and your position might have done the same thing. Mm. Knowing what I know now, I would do the same thing again. Mm -hmm. But I do think that me as an entrepreneur and as a person today may have handled things differently just because there was there was a confidence issue at play early because I was so young and, and didn't just didn't feel like I had the network to help me through it. And now I think I would make more phone calls and like really press people a little bit harder. At the time, I, you know, I just I just felt kind of like I was drowning a bit and kind of isolated and on my own. And I feel like over the last few years since the sale, I've tried to build up more of a network, better relationships so that if if that situation came up again, I would feel like I had people to lean on. Let's also talk about, again, the experience. What would you say now to Jewel, uh, even though things have worked out quite well, you got a great offer and you participated in the upside, but what might you tell her then, knowing what you know now about whether or not she should have dug in a little bit? I would say the process of selling the company and the back and forth and the negotiation and all of that. Yeah, how was that, by the way? The negotiation process. It was hard. I it bet was you hard. it was intense, it given was who the buyer intense. was. Yes. And I think that you kind of have to know that the culture that you are selling into, you're going to get a taste of it during the that, that ah, process. So pay attention. Pay attention Playbook to that. point. Pay attention to how it feels when you're having the conversations. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think that's a big thing because a part of me felt like once I get the deal done, then everything's going to be sunshine. It's going to be great. And to be honest, it it wasn't that way. And it wasn't sunshine going through it. It wasn't sunshine going through it. (laughs) No. So I think, you know, for me, that's something I wish I thought more about is just what's life going to be like on the other side of it. And for me, it's been a big challenge. It's been, um, you know, I've dealt with the feeling of loss Uh from my business and my business was so dear to me. And I feel like it it wasn't nurtured in the way that I expected um, Mm -hmm. with the buyer. So that's been a challenge. That's mm-hmm. been a big challenge. Um, but I will say I would not trade the whole opportunity because I've learned so much through the process sure. of just having an idea, building a team around it, raising money for it, selling the business, and then going through the process of integrating the technology mm-hmm. into you know one of the world's largest applications. That whole process, I mean, it's just been a huge learning experience. And now I feel like I have real tangible advice that I can give people and be helpful to other people coming up behind me. So what are the three or four questions that an entrepreneur should ask of a prospective buyer to assess what the culture might be like or what things might be like on the other side of the check? Hmm. 
That's a great question. I think one question should be, what will our product do? How will it grow? How will it expand? How will it serve customers? You need to get a really clear picture of that and make sure that there is intention on the buyer's side to do something with the product. And contractually put it in there, oh, right? Oh, yes, 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 yes. yes. <clears throat> That's a huge thing. I think additionally, you need to make sure that you have, if they're asking you to come on board or your team to come on board, that you have very clearly defined expectations regarding what you're going to be doing, what does a growth plan look like for you and the company, what your responsibilities will be, um, and what does support look like as far as resources? Will you all be able to expand the team? <clears throat> will you have, you know, a budget, <laughs> mm -hmm. what will you be able to do? Because I think a lot of times that just gets kind of fuzzied over and it's really important mm -hmm. as, as far as life after. Uh, and, and again, in the contract. In the contract. Right. All of these things have to be in the contract. Mm -hmm. And then the last piece I think is really important and, and was a big pain point for me was how will you be able to tell the story? Will you be able to tell the story? Ah. And for me, you know, I wasn't able to say that we were acquired by Amazon until a year into the deal. And that was really challenging for me because I thought this is such a great outcome. In my knowledge, it has never happened before. I don't, uh, I don't know of any other uh, African-American female that has had a business that's purchased by a, a company of that size and magnitude. Yeah. Right? So for me, it was it was super important for people to know that it's possible and it happened. And if someone else gets a term sheet from a large company like this, that at least they know of one person they can call that has mm -hmm. been through it before. And they were not they did not want me to to tell the and story. Was, did you ever understand why? <sighs> I mean, I think that it. I don't know why. I can't say. I do have my ideas. Um, but a lot of times people don't. I mean, this kind of goes back to hidden figures. People don't want the real talent ah. to be known. And it's unfortunate. And it's why I always make sure that I mention Dr. Nashley Cephas, because in my mind, she's another person who has all this technical talent and people don't know about her. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so the same thing, I think that, um, you know, they're happy to use the technology, but that don't necessarily want the people who actually built it to be known. Yes. So question for you. Do you think that uh, you were treated differently uh, as a young woman? Uh, one question mark. As a young woman of color, another question mark. As someone who didn't necessarily have a technical background, another question mark. Do you think you were treated differently in this whole negotiation process? For sure. Okay. Yes. Okay. Definitely. And I think it's important for people to understand this playbook point. The fact that you are having the conversation means you have leverage. Mm -hmm. So don't give up your leverage and don't assume you have no leverage because you're young, or yeah. because you're a woman, because you're a person of color, or because you didn't, you know, grow up with a, a technical background. They've already played their hand mm -hmm. because they're in it in the conversation. Yeah. I mean, that's such a big point that I did not know or I didn't have a lot of confidence in. Mm -hmm. There were some things that I felt strongly, so strongly about. They were kind of my non-negotiables that I did push back. 
But there were a lot of things that knowing what I know now, I should have pushed back on, but I didn't feel like I had the leverage. Yes. So So I'm glad we're talking about this so people know that they have the leverage. Mm -hmm. Okay. Those are some great playbook points. Last thing I'll ask you before we go to the lightning round is what advice would you offer to fellow entrepreneurs, specifically women and people of color, as they approach or consider, you know, growing strategically or, you know, potentially partnering with someone or selling their company? What would you say? What I would tell entrepreneurs now is build relationships early with potential acquirers. Don't get too close to where you're giving them all your information, but make it so that you're only a phone call away to getting more deals on the table if you need to, Mm -hmm. so that you don't feel like you're scrambling at the end. I would say you have got to talk to someone who's been through it before. I think there, in the few conversations I did have with people who had sold their businesses, I was able to pick up some things that made me more aware of tactics that the other side was using. Uh And so that was important. And then also, you kind of have to have your non-negotiables. So you have to have the few, let's call it three things that if they say this, you're out and you're willing to walk away. That's a huge thing because otherwise, if you don't have anything that you really are standing for and you won't do the deal if these things aren't met, then you're not going to you're going to be at a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. So I would say write out your non-negotiables before you go into any negotiation and make sure that you're firm on those things and you will walk away if if those things aren't met. Like in your case, making sure that your entire team had a contract to work on the other side of it. Yep, that was one of my non-negotiables, and I I really meant that. Yes. Okay. So what's next for Jill Burke-Solomon? So what's next? So I, through my own experience and through the last three years of just meeting with entrepreneurs just about every day, I've identified a big gap in the funding market. And so I have partnered with two also amazing entrepreneurs to um, build a fund to specifically tackle this gap that I see where, one, Black entrepreneurs just aren't getting the funding that they need to be successful. And two, a lot of entrepreneurs are pushed in the direction of venture capital, but venture capital is actually not fit for many businesses. So if you are building a business that has the capacity to be 10 to call it, you know, $200 million business, there's really not a place for you to go for early stage capital. Um, Mostly venture is looking for multi-billion dollar Mm -hmm. exits. And then banks are looking for you to have a lot of financial history, collateral. Um, So many early stage entrepreneurs aren't able to just go into a bank and get a loan. So Collab Capital is is the fund, and we're focused on this segment of businesses that today just don't have very many funding options, but are still building great businesses and mm-hmm. communities, hiring, and really have the capacity to help us with closing the the wealth gap. Excellent. And how much money are you trying to raise? Fifty million dollars. So fifty million. And where are you looking geographically? Across the country. Okay. Um, we have a focus just because of deal flow in our experience in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the companies that we're looking at are in Atlanta, but we are traveling and meeting people from across the country mm-hmm. and so, even in Africa as well. And what would be your typical size investment? So typical size investment in the company will be 250 to 500K on okay. the larger side. Okay. Yep. And at what stage of the company's growth? We're looking at companies that have a product or a service that this already started. So um, it's still early stage, but not 
pre-product. And we're looking at B2B and B2C companies, but we're really looking at companies that can leverage either corporate or social influence. So one of the things that we see is that, you know, companies that are accepting venture capital these days are using about 40% of that funding for customer acquisition costs. So they're giving that money right back to Google and Facebook and ads. That's right. And so we believe that (laughs) companies wouldn't have to raise so much money if they could just leverage the social and corporate capital to Mm -hmm. get in front of their customers and open up markets. Okay. All right. We'll be talking about that, Jill. So... We have started a little bit of a tradition on access and opportunity. It's called the lightning round, and it's a fun way for our listeners to get to know you as a person. So I'll ask a couple of questions rapid fire, and you answer in three words or less right off the bat. All right. Favorite book or magazine? Favorite book that I've read recently is The Color of Money. Okay. City or the countryside? Countryside. Winter or summer? Summer. Okay. Atlanta or Silicon Valley? Atlanta. I know that was a softball. All right. Coffee or tea? Tea. I love tea. Text or phone call? Hmm. Depends on who it is, but I'm going to say phone call. Okay. If you had a talk show, who would you want to be your first guest? Hmm. That's a good one. I'm going to say Oprah. Okay. What's one word that you'd like to use to describe your legacy? Resilient. Okay. Jill Burke-Solomon, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Access and Opportunity. We'll be back soon with another episode. See you then.